0: Amen. Well, I'm going to ask you to agree with me to be in unity in our desperation for God, unity in our hunger to see the Lord move, hunger to see Christ manifested and magnified as we sang the song that He is greater. (laughs) Don't you want to see Him greater, manifested as greater than all of our hurts and our worries and our fears and our bitterness and our struggles and our battles, that he is greater, amen? And let's be in unity to uh, agree to see a move of God's spirit, an outpouring. I want to tell you that at our elders meeting this past Thursday meeting, God met with us there. And there was just such a hunger all across our campuses. The elders and the pastors met uh, just uh, agreeing that we want to see God do here what we hear him reports of his fame doing elsewhere. (laughs) Amen. And uh, there's no replacement for that. Well, I had to buy a new snow snowblower yesterday, I have to tell you that. My old craftsman clunker wore out, and I bought a brand new Arians Professional 28... Alpine edition rapid track with hydrostatic drive, auto-turn steering, and a thumb joystick electric chute. Oh man, it is sweet. And what an upgrade it is. After two hours of doing amazing things with it and moving more snow than the old one ever could, I realized something. I realized that I was fighting that new machine. I was pushing it, I was moving it like as if I was using the old worn-out craftsman. And then when I realized that I just needed to quit trying to help it out and just let it do what it was designed to do, it was so smooth and so powerful and so easy to work with. It, it made such a big difference to let it do what it's designed to do. Do you hear me? (laughs) I want to talk to you this morning about fighting life's battles the way that God designed us to do it. God never promised us that life would be without battles, but by His grace, He's designed a way, His way, His pattern, for us to fight life's battles. And we'll discover a great advantage when we fight our battles the way that God has designed I've come to learn this truth, that people of faith have a great advantage in life. They really do. And the advantage comes from being in relationship with the Lord. God promises us something, and he promises us that he will fight our battles for us. So people of faith just believe what we sang earlier, that the battle belongs to the Lord. And we believe that we can, as the scriptures say, cast our cares on the Lord because he cares for us. We believe that we can, as we sang that new song. Thank you for that new song that we sang. That's going to be on the top ten list here at Willow that uh, we can call on the name that changes everything. God, turn it around. God, turn it around. God, turn it around. So I want to look at this scripture in First uh, Samuel today. We're going to look at ch- ch- chapter 15, um, 16, and 17. But just to <clears throat> bring us into it, it's found in 1 Samuel 17, 45, where we we'll read about a confrontation between a spirit-anointed boy... And a giant of a man, and I picked the, that description intentionally. That here's a confrontation between a spirit anointed little boy, little shepherd boy, and a giant of a man, and they're in contrast to one another. And so it it says in First Samuel seventeen forty five, David is saying to this giant of a man. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So the book of 1 Samuel addresses this question, how do we fight the battles of life? And it frames the question around the stories of Saul and David, the first two kings of Israel. And you can read the entire book of 1 Samuel through the lens of this question. How did these two guys, this little shepherd boy, and this giant of a man, or rather not the giant of a man is Saul, but he stood head and shoulders above everything else, the scripture says, that how did they fight life's battles? And their leadership as kings of Israel, the first and second kings of Israel, was supposed to be a witness to the rest of the world of the faithfulness of God to guide and provide for them as his chosen people. So Israel had a great advantage. God gave them a great advantage. The the relationship that they had with God was an incredible advantage. And this advantage was obvious to David. So David said, what is going to be demonstrated in this struggle, this battle, this confrontation between me and you, Goliath? He says, what's going to be made obvious, what's going to be made known to all the world is that there is a God in Israel? <laughs> I just love that statement, that confidence, that assurance, because that was the big deal. God is the big advantage. God's plan for Israel was to be this special people uh, for a purpose. They were set apart for a mission, the mission of God, to demonstrate to the rest of the world the glory of God, the goodness of God. They were to demonstrate to the rest of the nations how good it is to live in relationship with God. They were to demonstrate what a great advantage it is to walk with the Lord. And so over and over and over again, God tells Israel to be people of faith, to put their faith in God, and he will take care of them. He will fight their battles for them. So you can read this all through the Scriptures. Just Almost you can open up any page of the Old Testament and, and you'll find this, uh, this encouragement, this uh, aspect of faith. And example is Psalm 37 where we read, Trust in the Lord and do good. Then you will live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord and He will give you your heart's desires. The Lord rescues the godly. He is their fortress in times of trouble. The Lord helps them, rescuing them from the wicked. He saves them and they find shelter in Him. So King Saul and King David's main function as a king was to model that kind of advantage, that kind of advantage of living in relationship with Almighty God. They were supposed to model this faith in God so it would be an enticement for the neighboring nations to want to be drawn into relationship with the one true God. Not only in their personal life were they to model it, but they were to model it in their, their the way in which they were functioning as kings. And so they were to live and to lead in a way that demonstrated how true it is and how good it is that God will fight our battles for us. But, <clears throat> that explains then why Israel's story is recorded in Samuel through the lens of these two individuals, Saul and David. Their leadership would either do one of two things. It would either make much of God or it would make much of themselves. And that would be the test of their leadership. They, If they made much of God... Then Israel would be would make much of God. That is what leadership is. <laughs> it's living a life that models a relationship with God that entices others into it. That's biblical leadership. Then Saul appears on the scene, and he looks really good. The Bible says he, as far as physical appearance goes, uh, he he's head and shoulders of everybody else. And the ultimate question that is being asked as Samuel appears on the scene is, will he be that man of faith we've been desiring? Will he be a man that makes much of God? But as we read the life of Saul, we understand that he did not choose that great advantage. He did not live in that advantage. He rather chose to live in the great disadvantage. So in 1 Samuel 15, it describes the failure of Saul... And it centered in like his final failure that was the demise of him as king was in the battle against the Amalekites where God told them to perform the battle in a certain way and he did not do it right. And Samuel confronted him and Saul gave this explanation. Then Saul admitted to Samuel, yes, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command, for I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. That was Saul's issue. He was afraid and afraid of the people. Then Samuel re- replied, I will not go back with you, since you have rejected the Lord's command. He has rejected you as king of Israel. And the Lord was sorry that he had ever made Saul king of Israel. Saul's failure was a failure of pride. Pride produced a fear of man. He was self-concerned, self-conceited, self-aware. And it's really interesting what Saul's last request was to Samuel. As Samuel turned to leave because he knew that the Spirit of God had departed Saul and Samuel was done with him and he was turning away to go back without him. Saul grabbed him so hard that the scripture says Saul ripped the cloak of Samuel, ripped his robe. And it raises the question, what was Saul grasping after? What was he desperate for? And then it says that he pleaded with Samuel to come back with Saul and he says, So the people would see the prophet returning with the king. He said, I know I have sinned, but please at least honor me before the eyes of the people and before Israel by coming back with me so that they'll see me worshiping God with you. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> it's like Saul it was all about appearance. And he was wanting to live in secondhand faith with Samuel. He didn't have faith on his own, but he wanted people to him to look good. People would see him with Samuel, they would say, Oh, there's a godly man. But it was second-handed godliness, second-handed faith, living in the shadow of Samuel rather than having it himself. But Saul was desperate not for the glory of God, but for self-glory. He wanted to look good. He was a narcissist. He wanted the people to see him worshipping with Samuel. And he was self-aware, wanted people to see him, cared more for that than God seeing him. And that would give him points with the people when they saw him worshipping with Samuel. So Saul had one ambition and it was pride and personal appearance. He wanted to look good. He wanted the people to admire him, to think well of him. And so Saul failed as the first king of Israel because he saw leadership as an opportunity for self-promotion and self-glory rather than helping Israel see the glory of God. Saul turned down God's advantage and his self preoccupation became his own undoing. So it brings us to this question, where will God then send his advantage? Who will pick up his advantage? Who who, who will partner with God and receive this advantage? We come then to the next chapter, 1 Samuel 16, where it introduces us to David. Saul never made much of God, but David will. David wasn't always a perfect man, and we'll read stories about his failures, but no matter how hard and how far David fell, he still got up every time wanting to make much of God. And I love how later on in his life, during a severe attack that was coming against him, the scripture says that David went and sat before the face of the Lord which gives us a clue as to how David fought his battles. He went to God in prayer and brought the issue to the Lord because he believed that God will fight our battles for us. So in 1 Samuel 16, then God is up to something. And God sends Samuel to Bethlehem to find a man named Jesse. And he says, Jesse has a lot of boys and one of his boys is going to be the next king, and I want you to anoint one of his boys to be the next king of Israel. Well, Samuel was immediately impressed with one of Jesse's boys named Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said, no. And then he gave Samuel an important principle. He said, don't judge by appearance or by height." For I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way that you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God always puts his advantage on a heart that runs after him. It doesn't matter about our physical appearance, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter about our, our material accomplishments. What matters is our heart our trust, our faith, our confidence in God. Years ago when I was a young student at Bible College in my senior year, I was walking the commons of the Bible College with the, the denominational leader that I was a part of, and he was coming down there to recruit me to come up and pastor one of their churches. And we were having this conversation, He's telling me how much I had going for me, and then he said, But Dale, the one thing that's going against you is that you're so short. And I've thought about that over the years of what kind of perspective was that coming from. It was a perspective that was based upon physical appearance, right? Is our trust in that? Is that that what our confidence is in, is external things? Or is it in the might and the power of God? And so this verse, this principle that God gave to Samuel that that men look at outward appearance but God looks at the heart explains why it's so easy for us to make bad leadership choices. We are more often easily impressed with outward appearance than the heart. and But God says that he puts the advantage on hearts that trust after him, that make much of him, that run towards him. So it's, we could almost say there's two kinds of leadership. There's outward appearance leadership, self-reliance on human capacity of human might and power, Or there is heart-after-God leadership, self-abandonment to the power of God's Spirit. And that's why the story of David then begins with something really special, really specific, really intentional. And I want to make that point. That there's a lot that could be written about the story of David that's not in the scriptures. We don't read a lot about what happened, and we just have that little snippet that he killed a lion and a bear with his hand. But we don't have the story. We don't even have pictures of it. You know, we, we don't have David telling the story of how he did it. You know, is there a skill for us to duplicate? <laughs> no, the Bible makes it plain that he did that in the power of the Lord. But what the story the story of David begins with God's anointing him with the Holy Spirit. It says in 1 Samuel 16, 12, and the Lord said, you know, Samuel comes to Jesse's house to find the boy that he's going to anoint, and he finds David. And then it says, the Lord said, This is the one. This is the guy. Anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil that he had brought and he anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. There's a whole lesson we could teach on the anointings of David. There were three different anointings, and this anointing came 20 years before he ever would become king. (laughs) 20 years before he ever became king, he was anointed and told he would be king one day. And there's a lot that happened in those intervening years. of 20. But what Samuel wants us to know is that the first thing of first importance that God did for this to be a king... That would make much of him and be faithful to him was he received the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So, the very first thing that God did to prepare David to be king was to anoint him with the Spirit of God. And that's so critical to understand this was not the beginning of David's life. The story of David in the Bible begins with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon him. Like as if that's where it all starts. You know, that's the, the beginning point, the critical point, the, the pivotal point. So David's life just begins to stir up this hope in us that, oh, is there a spirit-anointed Messiah that is coming who will fight our battles for us? God anoints this young man who has a heart after him, and God's anointing always falls upon people who will say, nothing else will do. All I want is you. I just want you. On Wednesday morning, I was watching the live feed of the spiritual outpouring there at Asbury University in Hughes Auditorium. I had um, went to bed that night listening to it, had it on my pillow, the live feed going there. I'd wake up through the night. Found myself praying even in my sleep and longing for what is happening there. And I, many times in the night, I'd wake up and I, I did a screenshot recording of them and and found out Frankie was uh, in Anchorage that night, staying at the home there in Muldoon, and and she did the same thing, watched the revival all night long. Our heart is longing for that, but as I was watching that on Wednesday morning as the Spirit moved amongst the thousands of people who had gathered there, they were singing this song, Nothing else will do. All I want is you. And those words just settled in my heart. Nothing, nothing, nothing else will do. Nothing else will win the day. Nothing else is more important. I just want you. And then the... The speaker came forward and he exhorted the audience saying that you are not here as a spectator to an event. You are here to bear your soul before the word of God. This is not a place where any man or woman will be glorified. This is a place where only Jesus will be glorified. This is a place for humility and this is a place for brokenness, he said. And then the speaker told a story about a friend of his that had, gone, had <clears throat> been captured by the Taliban in Afghanistan, and he apparently was a very highly recognized medical doctor with multiple degrees and high-level accomplishments to his name. And after a long imprisonment, after time uh, went on, he finally was released and brought back to Colorado Springs where he was staying for rehabilitation. And the speaker who was speaking there at Asbury telling this story said that he was a friend of his, and so he went with some other friends to visit him. And they were very concerned when they met with him that the words that they chose, they wanted to pick their words carefully. They didn't know how, you know, what kind of PTSD he might have and didn't want to be offensive in any way. But they they asked a question to the effect where, uh, how is it now? Or how has this event affected you or changed you. And that this medical doctor said, well, it's brought me to a place of surrender where now I realize I'm just a person. I'm just an ordinary person. And what he meant was that his driving passion in life is no longer to make a name for himself, to strive after recognition or self glory, but he said, I found a new way to live in my adversity in prison in Afghanistan. He found peace there by being content to just be a person who lives for Jesus Christ, to let the light of Christ shine through his life wherever he is. And then the speaker at the Asbury Awakening urged the crowd of people to also lay down their pride and their striving to want to be the hero And he gave an excellent message on just living a life that is absolutely consumed with the passion for Jesus Christ. To live a life that chooses to give Jesus the glory in that life that we have to live. So that brings us back to the story of David and Saul. And these two stories in 1 Samuel force us to ask this fundamental question. It's a question about life, it's a question about leadership, And the question is, who gets the glory? Who will get the glory out of your life and my life, out of our achievements, out of our losses and our limitations, out of everything that we have, what God has given us? Who gets the glory And we understand that as the primary issue in this contrast in the story between these two men, Saul and David. Saul viewed leadership as an opportunity handed to him for him to get the glory. David, on the other hand, viewed leadership as a responsibility to give that glory to God. David said, I want people to see my glory But David said, I want people to see God's glory. Saul said, I'm in charge. I must look good. He was image conscious. But David said, nothing else will do. I just want you. He was imago dei conscious, or the image of God conscious. Not self-image, but God's divine image. And this brings us then to what is the primary focal point of the story... And that is the messianic pattern of how to fight our battles, which is by my spirit. 1 Samuel 17 is that famous battle in the valley of Elah, where there are three main characters. There's Goliath, there's Saul, and there's David. And the battle in the valley of Elah is recorded to be like a teaching moment for us to explain how it is that we fight our battles. How is it that we face our limitations and struggles and conflicts of life? And Goliath becomes like this challenge, right? He's the personality in the story who's the challenge that tests the faith, the quality of faith of these two guys, Saul and David. And it reveals where their faith is centered. And the battle reveals two ways to approach the conflicts and hardships of life. There's the way of Saul, and there's the way of David. And I want to tell you that this whole story is just brimming full, packed full of theological significance. It goes back to Genesis 3.15, which is God's first promise ever in the Bible after the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden that he would send someone to rescue us from the dilemma of sin. In Genesis 3.15, God tells Eve that through her lineage, from, through her line, through her seed, there would be a man that would be born, a Messiah would be born, who would do something specific. Listen to the language. He shall crush the head of the serpent. He shall be a skull crusher, right? The Messiah will be a scru- skull crusher. And uh, and uh, it reveals several things that, uh, first of all, the skull-crushing seed of the woman, the Messiah, would come through this line of David, and two, the way that the Messiah would crush Satan's skull would be through the power of the Spirit. Now, the way that Samuel constructs or arranges his story in 1 Samuel 17 Contrast Saul and David's approach to crushing the skull of Goliath. How are we going to defeat Goliath? And it's designed to show us the true and the false messianic pattern of the way in which God would set up his kingdom in this world. There are two ways, in other words, to take ground from the enemy two ways in which you will see the enemy defeated in your life, either by my spirit or by human might and power. David's faith, that he's trusting in the spirit that rushed upon him from that day forward, represents the belief that God's promise to crush Satan's head through the Messiah would be by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I know that's Kind of heavy theology, but it's, it's right there. And it goes even beyond that. Like, why did David take Saul's head to Jerusalem before it ever was Jerusalem? It was just Jabus then. It was owned and occupied by the Jebusites. David had not even yet been king to go over and defeat the Jebusites and set up his kingdom and call it Jerusalem. But he sent, he took Goliath's head and buried it in Jerusalem. Then fast forward to the New Testament. Where did Jesus, the Spirit-anointed Messiah, die on the cross for our sins? In a place called the skull, right? (laughs) Doesn't that make the hair standing up on your neck? Like, when we get to heaven, we're going to have a whole... Come to come. you know, and here on 3 p.m. eternity time, David is going to explain to you about the skull-crushing Messiah, and you're going to hear all about it. But there's so many vantage points or ways that we can, which we can see the work of Jesus on our behalf. And one of them is this reflection, this idea of how he crushes the head of Satan. And in that way, David then emerges out of a life of obscurity, just this shepherd boy, unknown shepherd boy from the hills of Bethlehem to reveal this messianic pattern of how God will crush Satan's head in this world. And it brings us to a recognition to say in our heart, to place our faith in this one person, that there is only one person who is a qualified skull crusher of Satan. It is the Spirit-filled Messiah, the Son of David. We come to the Gospels and Jesus would perform miracles and what would they do? They'd cry out and say, Oh, you must be the Son of David. What's that mean? That they recognize there is a Spirit-filled man, like the Son of David, the Spirit-filled Messiah, who would come in the power of the Holy Spirit to deliver His people to fight their battles for them. So there's only one correct way to fight our battles. In Romans 16.20 it says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Doesn't that sound like an oxymoron or a peace and crush? (laughs) Who's going to crush and how will he crush? How does God defeat Satan in your life? It's by bringing peace into your heart. Let the peace of God fill your heart. The Bible says. And the peace of God is what delivers us from the enemy's lies, that gives us unrest. It's His peace that delivers us and sets us free from anxiety, sets us free from fear, from from resentment, from bitterness, from unforgiveness. We need the peace of God. But listen to me the, the, the weapons of God's warfare are not physical, they're spiritual. So don't expect the way that his kingdom comes to destroy the works of devil to be physical in nature. They're they're by ways of peace, he'll bring peace into your heart. (laughs) And then Romans 5, 3 through 5 says, We also glory in our sufferings. In other words, there's an advantage in in our sufferings that we can receive because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I just love that. There's so much rich depth of theology in that. How will Satan be defeated in our life? By the inpouring of God's love? What is it that soothes your soul, that will heal your soul? We need a baptism of God's love. This Paul prayed for the Ephesians that they be rooted and grounded in the love of God, that they will know how wide and how depth and how long and deep is the love of God, that God will fill their hearts by faith through the Holy Spirit, Paul says there to the Ephesians. And here he's saying the same thing to the Romans, that God's love would be poured into their hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's spiritual in nature the way that Satan is defeated, the way we go through our times of sufferings in our battles is spiritual in nature. It's through the enabling, empowering work of the Holy Spirit. So that's how we fight our battles. People of faith have a great advantage in life because they have the Lord to help them crush the skull of Satan. Now I want to share with you something. Oh my goodness, I have less time left. Now than I did the first service. I got to get real. There are two. I want to share with you uh, an example of how embedded in this story are ten examples of two contrasting ways to fight our battles. So I'm going to go through them real quickly. There's a <clears throat> two attitudes of heart displayed in this story. First Samuel thirteen four says, "But now your kingdom will not endure." The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. That's what Samuel told Saul. So Saul is an example of a person who has not kept the Lord's command in contrast to David who will be a man after God's own heart. There are two examples of attitude, two different kinds of attitudes of heart upon which the Spirit of God falls upon. Secondly, there are two perspectives of, of looking or seeing or paradigms. First Samuel sixteen seven says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So what does man see? What does man look at? We are impressed with outward appearances. What does God see? What impresses God? He looks at the heart. There are two capacities of leadership. Revealed in this story. In 1 Samuel 16.1 it says, And from that day on the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. So in regards to Saul, uh, his capacity was greatly diminished because the Spirit of the Lord left him. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Secondly, David, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, revealing these two contrasting ways in which we can live our lives, either out of the capacity of God's Spirit or out of the capacity of our own strength, trying to live life, trying to do life, trying to go through our battles without the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, giving us the peace of God, pouring into our hearts the love of God. I I promise you, you can't, go through life successfully without that great advantage. (laughs) And then fourth, there are two categories of weapons displayed in this story. Um, 1 Samuel 17 says, So David prevailed over the Philistines in what way? Well, with a sling and a stone. And he struck the Philistine and he killed him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. For and if you read the story, you read that both Goliath and Saul approached with weapons made by man. They had a bronze helmet, they had a coat of armor, they had greaves, they had a javelin, they had a spear with a 15-pound iron spearhead to it. All of these were things manufactured by man. I mean, the story is intentionally want us to, wants us to see this as contrasted to David, who does not bring to the battle products of human making, but divinely manufactured weapons shaped by God alone, his own hand, a rod, and a stone. And then there's two amounts of experience revealed here. In 1 Samuel 17, it says, don't, Saul says, don't be ridiculous. There's no way that you can go and fight this Philistine giant and possibly win. You're only a boy and he's been a man of war since his youth. A contrast between breadth of experience, lots of experience. Surely it's, it's great experience that we're, we're looking for. It's, it's experience that will win the day. No, it's the Spirit of God, whether you have a lot of experience or a little bit of experience. In regards to Goliath, it says he's been a man of war since his youth. David, you're only a boy. No experience. There's no way you can win because you're only a boy. <laughs> and the, the story is just making us realize that the impossible is achieved because of the Spirit of God falling upon David. There's two levels of faith. 1 Samuel 17:26, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should... Taunt the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. I just And fascinated by the um, almost hypocrisy of this, where Saul says to David, "Now go in the strength of the Lord, but just just in case the Lord doesn't pull through for you, um, wear this armor, you know, put on this armor." It's like it it was just marginal faith; it was just half-hearted faith and trust in God. And Saul says, "The Lord be with you, but just in case." Put on the armor. But David said, no, the living God, the living God, and he alone will deliver me. I don't want the armor. And then there's two manners of boasting. In 1 Samuel 17, the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you could come to me with sticks? Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel with whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. Goliath boasted in what he was going to do, but David boasted in what God was going to do. There's two measures of engagement. 1 Samuel 17:48 says David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, but we know that before he got there, Saul uh, and Israel did nothing for 40 days. They were so f- paralyzed with fear at the... Uh, um, the intimidating sight of the giant Goliath that they did nothing for 40 days when David ran there he saw this as an opportunity for God and it says that he ran I just love how the scripture specifically says he ran to engage the Goliath, Goliath the giant he just he like there's no hesitation there's no half-heartedness there's no dilly-dally in his confidence in God he's just running right into it may God give me and give you you that same depth of faith. And then there's two different outcomes. First Samuel seventeen, it says David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. In regards to Goliath, their champion was dead and they fled. In regards to David, David prevailed over the Philistine. Two different outcomes, proving to us, demonstrating to us, which is more effective, which is the greater advantage. Running towards the battle in the strength and the might of the Lord, believing that the battle belongs to God, or doing it in our own might and skill, trusting in our physical Abilities. And then finally, there are two advantages for life. 1 Samuel 17 47 says, Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Teaching us that we cannot take on the forces of evil, we cannot fight life's battles by adopting the world's methods, by trusting in physical human mechanisms for approaching spiritual things. The Lord does not save with sword and spear, it says. But on the contrary, we must learn to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is is our great advantage, folks. And, And run to face the enemy in the power of his strength, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give Goliath into our hands. Psalm 35 has meant a lot to me this past week. Our kids were texting one another, and I got it, we got a text from our daughter-in-law that said, please pray for Brandon, my oldest son who's going through a hard time. And I was reading this psalm that morning, and God just shaped it into a prayer as I was praying it for Brandon and sent it to him. But listen to this psalm. It's an encouragement for all of us. It shows us that the Bible is calling us into a relationship with God to allow Him opportunity to show His might and strength through us in times of need. It says, Lord, oppose those who oppose me, fight those who fight against me, put on your armor. See, this is David asking God. To, to, you know, to, to, to become the the man of war on our behalf. Put on your armor. Take up your shield. Prepare for battle and come to my aid. Lift up your spear and javelin it, against those who pursue me. Let me hear you say, "I will give you victory." And it was that line that just gripped me in regards to Brandon's needs and 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 up here at willow and around the world i'm i'm just asking god to not just keep us on a journey of seeking to discover victory, but for us all to reach a place of victory so that the journey of life that we go through, we're journeying and traveling as pilgrims on a journey because we've experienced victory. And it's the victory that gives us hope to put a foot forward for the next day. It's like over and over, Frankie and I have said as we've approached difficulties in life that Frankie used to say, well, honey, remember? remember how God delivered us that last time. Remember what God did in that last circumstance that we faced what we thought that there was no way out but God provided for our needs. remember that time and it's, and it's the memory, the remembrance of times of victory that God came to our defense that helps us to move forward in the journey of life to face life's circumstances. Which brings us to this last thought I just want to nail down. Nothing can be substituted for God's glory. Nothing can be exchanged for His presence in our life. At the Asbury, Asbury outpouring, the president of the university stood before the audience this week warning them of bringing anything in their hearts that would turn their faith away from the Spirit of God onto human invention, invention or human glory, uh, and he compared the danger of managing the glory with the human hands that touched the Ark of Uzzah. Remember how the story of Uzzah and how he touched the Ark and it, that contained the, the presence of God. And the President was just warning about the danger of just letting God be God rather than interjecting human schemes and human mechanisms into that outpouring, for example you 've probably read about Tucker Carlson on Fox News. It was asked to come to the he asked if he could come to the school to do a news feature on what was happening there on the outpouring in the school responded to him that they they turned him down because they didn't want self-promotion to touch the glory. And Tucker said, I I watched uh, on YouTube his response. He said, um, now folks, what that should say to us that either something really sinister and really dark is happening there or something so glorious, something so magnificent, something so holy, something so wonderful, something so heavenly that they don't need the news networks to promote it. He said, this is so contrary from anything I have ever seen or heard all my life. He says, normally people are begging us to come and do a news story on, or, on them so that they get recognition and notoriety. But they're turning it down because they don't need it. They, and this is the, true in our life as well. When we have His presence, when we have His glory, that's enough. That's enough. Nothing else will do. Lord, You are enough. All I want is you. And I've heard said that a very famous worship leader offered to come and help them lead worship must have thought they needed help. If you, if you watch some of the worship leading, it's just so common, it's just so simple, it's so unrehearsed. And, and, and they turned down the offer lest it be a distraction away from the holy presence of God. All of that just shows us how important it is to recognize in our heart and life we can't substitute anything for the real deal, for the real presence, for the great advantage. 1 Samuel 17, 47 says, Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save in the way that we normally think He would in the ways in which our conferences and our conventions and our seminars have taught us that God does. God does not save by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, the battle is spiritual in nature, and He will give you into our hands. This has always been our temptation to substitute God's glory for self-glory, to substitute the messianic baptism of the Spirit with human might and power. So I want to just close and ask you this question. When you are weary and heavy-hearted, where do you go to get refreshed? Here's what David did in the Scripture up on the screen. As the deer pants for streams of water... David said, so my soul pants for you, my God. That was his pursuit in life, his passion to turn towards the Lord. So Lord, in closing now, as we sing this last song, I just ask that you will meet with us individually. Meet us where we are. We we pray that uh, you'll just lock us into an awareness of your presence like we've never had before. And Lord, put a resolve in our heart that we want that one thing that you have chosen, that you have given, that you have sent, that you have sent us the Holy Spirit to pour the love of God into our hearts. And that alone is what we want. That alone is what we run after, God. For it's only you that will win the battle for us. So, Father, we trust in you and we come to you as hungry people. We come to you with open hands, emptying ourselves, letting go. We want you to take charge, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord as we sing this. Last song.